Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. I never understood camping. I mean, there are bugs, no electricity, 
and you're subject to whatever the weather wants to do. I don't even like hiking that much. And if anything bad happens, you're far from help. I won't even get into the bathroom situation, but a lot of people do love the outdoors. Of course, you can commune with nature, find peace with yourself. The story I'm going to tell today is one of the not-so-good nature stories. A pair of friends embark on a journey through the vast woods. Along the way, they meet a stranger, and not all of them will leave the woods alive. This week, I'll talk about the first murder on the Appalachian Trail. For this story, I used an article in Outside Magazine by Earl Swift entitled The Stranger in the Shelter. So it was so good and so well written that I didn't feel the need to use other sources. And I also did research on whether it's pronounced Appalachia or Appalachia. So I've always said Appalachia. I found a video on YouTube of author Sharon McCrum. She said Appalachia is the pronunciation of condescension or said by people who do not want to be associated with the area. And if you say Appalachia, it means you're on the side of trust. She said it was like the difference in Ireland between saying Derry and Londonderry. You can get a taxi driver to take you to the same place no matter which way you say it. But the way you say it will tell him whether you're trustworthy or not. So obviously I'm going to pronounce it Appalachia, but I'll probably slip up and say it the other way, so bear with me. In 1973, Margaret McFadden had just turned 17 before she arrived at the University of South Carolina. Born to a mother who was a clinical pathologist and a father who was a physician, Margaret was intellectually gifted and curious. In her new hometown, she dug into that little bit of counterculture the area had to offer. You know, the 70s tarot cards, astrology, growing ferns, bead curtains, bell bottoms, free love, long hair, and finding yourself. And when Margaret wasn't deep into a book, she could be found waiting tables at Capri's Italian. And that's where she met Joel Polson, a short-swearing, nine years her senior, a guy who towered over the petite woman. Joel was from Hartsville, South Carolina, the youngest born to John E. and Bonnie Tedder Polson. His mother was a homemaker, and his father was a mill worker turned jeweler. When Joel was around 13, he suffered this awful fall. He was climbing up a tree to get on the roof of the garage, and he fell. However, he didn't recall a thing, but it did affect him mentally thereafter. And it caused him to get behind in school by two years. Schoolmates described him as quiet and unassuming. In high school, he discovered a love of photography, and that and his love of biking brought him to find nature. And this became his new passion. So the two got to talking. He told her of his love of nature and his plans to hike the entirety of the Appalachian Trail. Oh, and she should join him. You gotta give Joel points for that line. Of course, Margaret thought this idea was preposterous. She couldn't just take off with some guy she just met. Plus, she wasn't in any kind of shape to hike a 2,000-mile trail. But Joel was persistent. Every time she ran into him around town, he brought the idea up. Perhaps it was the idea of just being so free as to just take a few months to hike a trail that she admired. As someone who wasn't so sure what to do with her life, Margaret wished she had that dedication to something that Joel did. So, she decided to take him up on his offer. By 1974, less than 100 people had completed hiking the entire Appalachian Trail. Now, that idea seems crazy to think about now. So, you can understand one of the reasons why Margaret was so hesitant. 
According to the AppalachianTrail.org, it takes an average of five to seven months to complete the hike, and every year thousands attempt it. Only one in four make it all the way. The story I'm telling today will tell you about the first murder there, and to date there have been 13 in all. Not counting murders, heart attacks are the highest cause of death on the trail. After that, falling and drowning. And of course, those have increased in the era of selfies with people taking stupid risks to get that perfect pick. But let's not forget about dehydration, lightning, and tick-borne illnesses. So thank you, Katie Licavoli on Greenbelly.com for that info. Margaret and Joel began their trip in May of 1974 at Springer Mountain, Georgia. And Joel was surely a sight because he was wearing a pith helmet that was reminiscent of ancient explorers. For first-timer Margaret, these sights were astounding. The sky was as clear blue and the flowers were just starting to bloom. What wasn't so fabulous was the toll that terrain was taking on her feet. And that was evident by her new-forming blisters. I think we've all seen Cheryl Strayed's Wild or Reddit, but you remember how wrecked her feet were in those boots. So after only covering six miles, and surely a relief to Margaret, the new friends called it a day. And that's when the stranger came upon their camp. He was blonde with horn-rimmed glasses, maybe a bit older, and definitely smaller than Joel. His name was Ralph. Now Margaret thought he'd been on the trail for a while by his gear and his smell, but the man seemed quite harmless. But Joel took his friend aside to whisper his uneasiness about this guy. He was put off by the lack of the man's proper gear and the fact that his boots were made of suede. Perhaps they were just too polite or too reticent to tell this man to leave, for they said nothing, simply going about their business of preparing dinner over the fire. Ralph helped wordlessly by gathering wood for the fire. But still, Joel had this nagging feeling in his gut. He whispered to Margaret that they should try to ditch him early in the morning before he woke up. When the morning came, Joel woke her, urging her to get moving with her plan. He was already packed, and he hurried over to the stream to splash some water on his face. As Margaret began to gather her things, she heard this odd blast noise. She looked over to see Joel, who now lay motionless near the fire. When she raised her head, a revolver was pointed directly at her face. It was Ralph. As he tied her hands behind her back, all she could think of was Joel. I mean, how hurt was he? Ralph assured her that he was only injured. She urged him to pull her friend's head away from the fire to keep him from getting burned. He tied her to a tree and blindfolded her, assuring her that he would do this. After some time, Ralph returned. And this time she didn't see Joel anywhere. I got rid of him, Ralph said. Ralph ransacked Joel's backpack, demanding money. Joel did have some traveler's checks, while she only had changed both of which she surrendered. Joel had been broke when he got his gear at the backpacker store. This was run by brothers Malcolm and Lewis Jones. So he traded his beloved fiddle and he signed an IOU note in exchange for the gear that Ralph was now rifling through. At this point, Margaret suspected her friend was dead. As a stranger led her deeper into the woods, she feared the same outcome for herself. After some time, he once again positioned her against a tree, tying her hands and binding her legs. This time, he declared he would leave her there. He would put a note at the shelter as to where she was, and he would leave. He left some granola and water on Joel's pith helmet, both of which she could barely reach. 
and before he left, he placed Joel's watch nearby so that she could tell the time. In the end, Joel Polson had been killed over some traveler's checks and hiking gear. It didn't seem right. It also didn't seem so easy to think that he was just going to leave her. So Margaret wasn't so sure that she was in the clear. I mean, why did he kill Joel and leave her alive? And after a short time, she knew she was right to trust that feeling because Ralph returned. He said he felt he couldn't just leave her there in case someone didn't find her. She could die. He only killed Joel, he said, because he was a bigger guy and could possibly overwhelm him. And that's when he gave her a choice, to stay at the shelter, tied up, or hike through the mountains with him. He promised that upon finding the next highway, he would let her go. So for a woman who didn't know anything about being alone in the woods, she had no choice but to walk with her friend's murderer. Margaret walked in front, Ralph behind, directing her lead with the gun. She was instructed to keep her mouth shut if they encountered anyone, which scared the shit out of her. I mean, what might happen if they met someone on the trail? Then moments later, Ralph was sweet to her, telling her to rest whenever she needed it and to walk her own pace. She couldn't figure this guy out. So far, complying was keeping her safe and alive. Seems like you're on the run from something, she said. He replied that he'd been in and out of jail, had recently busted out, and that the FBI was probably looking for him. Through bits of strained conversation, she also learned that he was from the north, but he had been out west in the mountains, and he wanted to return there. And that's when she saw the men walking towards them. One of the guys had talked to her and Joel the day before, so she feared that he would ask where Joel was now. When they got close, the man did mention seeing her before. and She just nodded, afraid of what would come next. Fortunately, he did not inquire more. Her captor asked the men where they might come upon the next road crossing. And to her dismay, they said it was a long while off. As the men walked away, they had no idea how close they had been to death's door. Margaret thought about her parents who wouldn't even know the full extent of what she was going through. Knowing their hesitation about traveling alone with a man that she barely knew, she had lied to them about the trip. Instead of traveling with Joel, she told them that she would be with 15 other college students with Joel leading them. Her parents then felt so secure about the trip, they supplied her with hiking gear. And now she was alone with a murderer who was possibly going to kill her too. She prayed that she would see her parents again. For some time, Ralph had promised he would let her go. Near Unicoi Gap, he announced there was a new plan. They would hitchhike to the nearest town upon finding a road, get a motel room, and then he would let her go. After reaching Georgia Route 75, they stood there a few moments until a car pulled over. Ralph asked the young woman behind the wheel where they might be able to cash some traveler's checks. They had a problem, he said, because they'd both lost their IDs. So to help, the woman drove them to a restaurant near Helen where they could do that without any trouble. Now, Margaret was still terrified. Ralph had warned her many times that if she made any sudden moves or she let anyone know what was happening, that he would kill her and them. And that gun was always within his reach. She didn't want to die or be responsible for anyone else getting hurt. The woman dropped them off at the restaurant where Margaret got $20 and traveler's checks cashed and she found advice on where to stay for the night. At the Chattahoochee Motel, Ralph signed them in as Mr. and Mrs. Polson. 
Of course, Margaret now feared that she might be raped, but to her surprise, Ralph didn't touch her. He let her take a shower, although he stayed in the bathroom to make sure she didn't escape. And as he practiced signing Joel's signature, he told her it was sad that they didn't meet under different circumstances. So probably due to just sheer exhaustion, Margaret slept that whole night. And she woke to find Ralph still sitting in the chair with his gun watching over her. Next stop was a gas station to cash more traveler's checks in the coffee house for nourishment. So over breakfast, he told her the new plan. This was to get to a bus station, put her safely on a bus to South Carolina, and then they would go their separate ways. There was a bus station not far in Cleveland. They hitched a few rides, but once there, they found it was closed. After some time, the window opened and they purchased their tickets, his to Atlanta and hers to South Carolina. By this time, he figured once they split, she would notify police. He'd be easy to find carrying Joel's big backpack. He promised her that if that were the case, he would take a lot of people out with him. Finally, his bus came and he boarded. As she watched him go, she realized she was finally free. But freedom isn't so easy once you've been held captive. Your first inclination isn't to find help. Margaret was still in this protective mode. She just sat quietly waiting for her bus. And it wasn't until she reached Columbia that she even felt safe to call police. On May 11th, GBI Special Agent Stanley L. Thompson and Sheriff Frank Baker went to the White County to find the body of Joel Polson near the shelter. Joel's head was covered with a plastic bag, and Thompson surmised that was to keep the blood from being strewn about the area. He could tell that Ralph had drugged the man's tall body across the stream. The autopsy found that Joel had been shot behind his left ear. The 38 caliber bullet was still lodged in his scalp. Margaret told the detectives everything she could remember. And then after about a week, a tip came in that a woman had seen a man fitting Ralph's description. He was her neighbor. Thompson and Baker got a warrant for the apartment, finding Joel's backpack and the murder weapon, but not Ralph. When he returned to his apartment, he found Thompson waiting for him. So who was this mild-mannered killer? He was 31-year-old Ralph Howard Fox from Detroit, Michigan. He grew up in a middle-class house, the youngest of three. But for whatever reason, he began getting into trouble in his teens, first kidnapping a girl and then stealing a car at age 17. At age 20, he took off to New Mexico with an underage girl named Anne, getting him arrested for statutory rape. The two later married. She was only 16. However, married life did not calm him down. While his young wife was pregnant with their child, he kidnapped another teen. A cop happened upon him in a secluded spot as he was tying the girl's hands behind her back. Now, for that crime, he was given 15 years in prison. But Ralph somehow managed to escape the facility. On the run for months, he was captured in Florida. And according to his sister, he was never out of trouble long. While on parole, he broke into his now ex-wife Anne's apartment. When she walked in the door, he shot at her, barely missing. From there, he took off, floating around the country. So the story he told Margaret now all made sense. He did break out and was wanted by police. It was just Joel and Margaret's unfortunate luck to run into the ex-con on the trail that day. Fox was charged with murder and sentenced to life in Georgia State Prison. 
He spent 17 years there until 1991 when he was granted a reprieve to attend his brother's funeral. Eventually, that turned into parole, with Ralph getting permission to live with his sister, Corrine, in Michigan. Now, Corrine wanted to believe he was a changed man, but as she stated before, it was never long before he found trouble. Seven months later, he failed to show for a meeting with his parole officer. A week later, police found the nude body of 29-year-old Diane Good in a field. Tire evidence led to the car's owner, Ralph Fox. He was found just two days later trying to break into a car. Claiming his innocence had no effect on the jury who found him guilty of the murder and strangulation of Diane Good. He eventually died in prison in June of 2003 of lung cancer. So you're probably wondering what happened to Margaret. She's now married and living in Europe, the mother of five and grandmother to two. She said she rarely thinks of what happened in May of 1974. But when she does, it's like it happened to someone else. So much of the story doesn't make sense. And she still can't reconcile while Joel was killed or why Ralph let her go. What made her so different from Diane Good? And she can only guess it's because she stayed calm and complied with him. The experience, thankfully, did not ruin her love of the woods. For years, she worked at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And she managed forest projects in countries like Brazil, Nicaragua, Honduras, Pakistan. So that element of danger never kept her from doing what she loves. She said, maybe this experience helped me see that life is a fleeting moment. So grab it and go. I thought that was such a great quote. So that was the story, the first murder on the Appalachian Trail. I'll try to post a link to the story by Earl Swift for Outside Magazine. I really like that Margaret wasn't afraid of the woods after that whole ordeal. That's just amazing. People's courage to overcome their trauma. And this was a really amazing story of survival. And it's really odd. It makes me wonder why Ralph Fox turned to a life of crime. I can only assume that maybe he had some underlying mental issue, since his sister implied they had a really normal life growing up. So, of course, I was thinking of giving up the podcast for the five billionth time when I read the sweetest email. It was from Jen, who's a single mom, and she said she listens to the podcast while she works. And she thanked me for being open about my depression. And Jen, man, that email meant the world to me. I just want you to know. And I read it at such an important time. It just gave me the strength to continue and just stop doubting myself. Thank you so much for writing in your kind words. I hope you're listening and I hope your day is going very well. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. If you'd like to connect, find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you can email me at redrumblonde at gmail.com. Jen, thanks again. And thanks everybody for listening and catch you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.